Hey everyone, this is Arnold with Form Welcome. Happy Wednesday. Welcome to another episode. Uh, this is a show where we welcome Asian American restaurateurs, chefs, founders, and tastemakers. Today we're sitting down with Hannah Wong, who is the chef and owner of an upcoming restaurant called Hema, to be located in Crown Heights or Bed Stuy. And it is an Asian street food inspired restaurant. And Hannah has a very uh, unique story, but I, I wanted to feature her right after Eric uh, Huang from last week because Hannah also has worked for Chef Daniel Boulud, but at DB Bistro, and also worked at Gramercy Tavern, and is also hoping to open up a restaurant. Um, but we also spoke a little bit. Uh, if, if, if last week with Eric, we spoke on cultural appropriation, and I think uh, today's episode with Hannah, we touched a lot on reimagining and rethinking and repurposing restaurants, right? Because the restaurant industry, or restaurants as we know them, uh, on, the, on, on the back end and behind the scenes, there's honestly a lot of problems with it, the way it's structured and the way it's designed. So. Um, Hannah has some great takes and we went uh, into a pretty deep conversation about the power structure in a restaurant, redistributing resources back to the community and what that means, how to make a restaurant accessible via maybe uh, a mutual aid program, a tiered pricing model. Um, you know, restaurants as, as, as good as they are for, for certain things, such as making a fabric of a city and providing a safe space for some. Um, creating memories. I mean, there's some there's some really great things, and I think they're packaged and and, and shared to the audience in, in a fairly good and positive light. Behind the light, behind the scenes, again, sometimes it's it's a lot of unfair wage practices and and toxic work environments too. So we wanted to tackle that and how she's spending the time right now to re- really rethink and reimagine restaurants as we know them. So I'm really excited to talk to you because um, obviously we've worked together with that event back in February, which, oh my gosh, I mean, this just feels like last year or maybe even like a couple years ago. Um, and uh, I really enjoyed, you know, working with you at, with that event and uh, always felt like I wanted to speak with you more and kind of like pick your brain a little bit more. But then, uh, you know, the world came crashing down. So... <laughs> It's okay. We, we have time now, so <laughs> nothing but time. <laughs> it is now Monday, sorry, Sunday, August 16th, uh, exactly five or six months since uh, New York was on pause, but excited to finally chat with you. But uh, definitely would love to begin right in the beginning because, uh, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, because sometimes my research could be wrong. Um, I read that your dad once upon a time, worked as a cook at Wohop in Chinatown? Yeah, that was his first job. Uh, he and my mother both worked there uh, when they moved to New York uh, from Hong Kong. Uh, that was their first jobs like, that put them through college. Um, my dad was in the kitchen and my mom was at the register. Uh, so they, they both moved and then worked together here in, in mm-hmm. the city. Yeah. And um, I know you're actually by, by birth South Korean. Right. And you're adopted. So did you, when did you, did you come straight to New York? Yeah. So I was adopted from Korea when I was 13 months old. So just over a year old. And, uh, I, my parents by that time had moved to New Jersey. So I actually spent, I moved to New Jersey. I spent my childhood, my adolescence there, uh, until I moved away for college. Um, but we, we always had a lot of family in this, in New York and Brooklyn and Queens. And so 
like pretty much every week we would come out every weekend we would come out to the city uh we used to we used to go to church in chinatown and uh and my my uncle my dad's brother worked at a, a dim sum restaurant in chinatown and so and so we would go there you know for meals um so i feel like yeah i feel like being in chinatown being in new york is was definitely a big part of my my childhood well what was it? What I mean, was there like a triggering experience or like a, I guess the better way would be like an inflection point for you to pursue, uh, cause you went to Johnson and Wales later on. So was there, was there, a, a, like a singular experience that made you realize I'm gonna, I'm gonna kind of pursue cooking professionally? I mean, I think, uh, when I was in Cambridge, I'd started working part-time at this restaurant and uh, I really enjoyed it. I mean, I think at the time when I decided that I was going to leave publishing and pursue cooking, I was deciding either between sort of like staging at that restaurant in the kitchen and, and learning more hands-on and going to uh, culinary school. I'm not sure in retrospect if I would have made the same decision, um, but I did feel like at the time having some sort of like structured education because I didn't have any like real experience cooking um, was was the smarter. I mean, I also probably have a bias toward, you know, like formal education, unfortunately. Um, so that's definitely, that was definitely a factor. Yeah. And so just, just to kind of like put this on the timeline after Johnson and Wales, was it, was the first kind of professional kitchen setting other than the restaurant that you worked at prior, uh, on the side, was that, was that with chef Daniel Baluda at DB Bistro? Yeah. Mm -hmm. That was my uh, externship out of college. And then I was there for, was there for a year and a half, I think. What was it like back then? Because this was probably at the height of it, right? Because I think the burger debuted there, no? Mm -hmm. The burger <laughs> debuted there? That's what it's known for, right? I mean, yes. at the end of the day. Yep, yep. Yeah, the burger. That's for people who don't know. The burger, the DB burger is, uh, I think it's like probably at least eight ounces of ground beef with uh, braised short rib and then uh, a chunk of foie gras in the middle. It's, it's pretty ridiculous. I should have probably, I, I, I should have eaten before I spoke to you, but yeah, go, <laughs> go, go ahead. <laughs> it, it's just like the epitome of excess, but I mean, it was delicious. Yeah. I, so I started there. I, I remember my, I was making seven twenty five an hour when I started, um, which, uh, you know, that was not that long ago. That was eight years ago. Um, so, so we've come really far and yet, you know, we still obviously have a long way to go. But I, I think I, I really liked working there. I liked working there, working at Gramercy too. I just learned, it, the, that was like my culinary foundation. I mean, I learned speed and techniques and organization, attention to detail. And uh, especially at Gramercy, just a lot around teamwork. And um, I think, yeah, I think those two restaurants, um, and I worked at some other businesses that weren't restaurants that I, I felt like were really valuable for me. But in terms of like developing acute culinary skills, those two restaurants really um, were formative for me. You were most recently at Vanda with uh, Ian, who, who I also had on the podcast, which I learned actually Vanda was uh, your catering space. So it was for, it was a, it was a satellite kitchen almost for all your uh, events and catering. Cause you were actually the executive chef of uh, a catering company correct? Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. So I had been working with Ian for, for two years prior to opening Vanda. And we were for part of that time operating out of the Vanda kitchen space. Um, 
And when we had first started working together, I mean, the idea that brought us together initially was opening a restaurant. So that was always sort of like on the docket. But the catering business was was really busy for you know the last two, three years. And we just like never got around to renovating the space and, and sort of diverting resources to that until until uh, the end of what the previous twenty what twenty eighteen. Um, we opened last year, yeah. So as of today, I guess like five, six months ago, you you're no longer at the restaurant anymore because you, you left on March 14th. But talk to me a little bit about that year, right? Because I think I want to dive a little bit deeper because in, in a lot of ways, this was your first restaurant opening. It was your first executive chef position at, a, at, a, at least like a restaurant, right? Standalone restaurant. So tell me what that was like uh, for you. Yeah, at the beginning of Venda, you know, when we opened, it was just Ian and I and uh, our our porter prep cook in the kitchen. We didn't have, you know, we didn't have really a kitchen staff. Um, you know, hiring is is really, I think, is uh, one of the biggest challenges of having a restaurant in New York. You know, we didn't want to just hire anyone because uh, I think the restaurant is so small and personal that we were prioritizing sort of like a good fit. And uh, the, it takes time. And, and so we opened with just the two of us and, and our uh, porter prep cook in the kitchen. And, and so the workload, I think, in the beginning was, uh, <laughs> it was a lot of work. Um, I think uh, our ability to work together was really important. I think um, we had a, you know, we had a great front of house staff, I, I, which I think really helped a lot. And the, and the team, it was, you know, it was really about the team in the beginning. I think, I think we managed to hire a staff that, felt really convicted about the restaurant, the food, what, you know, what we were trying to do us as people. Um, and I think that sort of like funneled out into the, into the dining room. I think people really could sense how personal this restaurant was for us. And, uh, so, you know, like all of the hard work and, uh, energy that we were putting into and the love. When I think back on that year, especially, you know, when we were getting some recognition, I, I just, uh, I feel like the best part of that time was that we just never really expected to get, you know, we never expected a times review. We didn't expect any recognition from Michelin. Those, those were just uh, things that happened along the way. And I think those things validate your, you know, your business to an extent, but for that not to be the goal or the purpose of the restaurant, I think that was the whole point, right? was we weren't doing this for accolades, uh, we were doing this to tell a story, and uh, and I, I think that really resonated with people. The other thing that I think you can validate, but I've heard from Yen, is she told me that during the time you guys have been open since the since, since opening the restaurant, not only one person has quit in your staff. Oh yeah, that's true. That's crazy. It was very easy to to recognize if people would fit or not, you know, and the and the sort of culture that we had created. I think having that strong sense of personality for the restaurant and the culture was, I think that was an important part of hire, of our hiring practices, you know, and also a lot of, you know, of, especially at the front of house staff, a lot of those people were friends or, or acquaintances or people, you know, we knew before and, and had identified as people that would fit into the restaurant. In any case, I definitely want to move on a little bit and, and talk about uh, the new project and your own restaurant that you're working on and you're hoping to open, get a little bit update as well, because um, prior to the pandemic, um, like I mentioned earlier, your last day was March 14th, you said, right? 
And that was because you were opening your own restaurant. So tell me a little bit about, I guess, the initial concept and the name and, and things of that nature. Ian is my business partner in this new venture, um, which is called Hema, which maybe, as you know, means seahorse in Korean. Actually, I've spoken to a few Korean friends who did not know that word existed. Then there's a Chinese word, Haima, that is uh, also is uh, similar. It means seahorse in Chinese. Haima is also a, a homonym for an Icelandic word, uh, which means home or homeland. And also, you know, they're just like the coolest, weirdest, like creatures. They um, they like flip the script on nature. You know, they're just like <laughs> they like swim upright. They like. They have these like weird prehensile tails. Um, they're like bad swimmers and they live in the, you know, they live in the, in water. Um, and they have those like, you know, males, males are the actual, uh, they carry the, the, the offspring or, you know, so they're just like, you know, I, I, I find them very like compelling and, uh, just like mystical and sort of like how, how did these creatures make it through the, you know, how did they last the, how do they last through time? Um, but so, so I kind of liked how whimsical they, they are. And, um, but I think sort of speaking to the, the multiple like un, uh, definitions of the name, I had originally conceived of Hema as um, like really not just a restaurant, but, but really a, a community space with like multiple functions. Um, and I, in the beginning, I was thinking about how I could use it as like a co-working space or like a private event space for pop-ups um, and really trying not to see it as just like a restaurant that was open like five nights, five or six nights a week for, or like just doing like dinner or lunch, you know, I think that's still like a really integral part of the vision. I don't, I don't think I want a hospitality business that just like replicates kind of like a restaurant model, especially, you know, that COVID has exposed is, is just like full of holes. And, uh, and I wanted to, I think I just wanted to to challenge myself to like come up with my own understanding of what of what I wanted my business to look like. So more like a community driven space, right? It's exactly, like, yeah. And it's I not think just that, a transactional space. Yeah, for totally. And I think that the the sort of like street food inspired food concept ties into that because I definitely wanted I think for a couple of reasons. I mean, like as we talked about earlier, it's I didn't feel comfortable having a food concept that was sort of like cuisine driven, uh, just because, you know, in terms of identity, I just, it felt restrictive and in a way that didn't feel true to who I was. Um, but I also feel like, like street food is, I, I'm always, I'm always drawn to like cultures and, and, and places where they they have a strong street food cult, you know, like a street food culture. Um, and I feel like that is, like super accessible for people. And it just, I think it resonates with people like across, no matter like what kind of food you grew up eating or, you know, I, I do feel like, um, I think it also challenges people to like be more open about the kind of food that they might be willing to try or just not just identifying a dish as like Chinese or Korean or American, you know, but just, I mean, like, does it taste delicious, you know? Yeah. But if someone, if someone that just ran into you or just got to know you and, and was asking you what kind of cooking you, you were doing at uh, Hema, would you say it was like, would you say it's an Asian restaurant that was, that, that, that has like um, a street food inspired menu? Like how would you, how would you ex explain it in that sense? 
Yeah, I think I think my elevator pitch is kind of, and I struggled with this a lot actually because uh, it, it was a mouthful in the beginning. And I think uh, it, I, I now I tell people it's casual and it's uh, Asian street food inspired. Nice, simple, and straight to the point. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> and here's the menu. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. <laughs> <laughs> Talk to me a little bit about, uh, cause you did a little bit of cooking, uh, under this new name and concept and you had actually debuted it, um, in May at Vanda. So share, share with me and share with the audience a little bit about the food that you did. Cause I, I, I was, it looked amazing. Ian and I did a, a pop-up out of Vanda for I think five or six weeks, um, in April and May. And you know, we wanted to make some money for our staff because some of our staff weren't eligible for, for government benefits. And, uh, yeah. And I wanted to start building some traction for him. I wanted to, you know, get some feedback and, uh, it really was, I think the first time that I was cooking for, for paying customers under the HEMA brand. And, uh, yeah. So what were some examples of maybe either crowd favorites or your favorite dish that you were proud of during that pop-up? When I was sort of like going through and reflecting on, on some of the dishes that, that became more popular. Um, one, I think I realized that people liked the seafood dishes better, which, you know, I kind of makes sense with Hema meaning seahorse, but also I was kind of like, Oh, maybe I need to think about, like maybe I enjoy cooking seafood more. I don't, you know, I don't know where that's coming from. Um, but I think one of my, one of my personal favorite dishes that I made was, uh, a dish that I never thought about before. Um, but I went to the market one week, I saw these like beautiful spring onions and I, I wanted to do a seafood dish. I was thinking scallops and I was like, Oh, like I love, I, I like love serious, like very, simple seared scallops with some like sauteed aliums. So like shallots, uh, scallions, spring onions. I think the like flavors of the scallop with the, like that, the oniony stuff is like so synergistic. And, uh, and then I was also like, Oh, I, I th- like scallops, brown butter, right? Cause you base the scallops and brown butter when you cook it, uh, at a restaurant. And, uh, so I was thinking, Oh, what can I do with a brown butter sauce that like gives this kind of, uh, sort of like drives it more in a Southeast Asian direction. And so I was thinking of jiao, which is like a Thai dipping sauce, like a seafood dipping sauce, but it's like lime, fish sauce, um, rice powder and Thai chilies and all this stuff. So what I am doing was searing the scallops, adding my butter, browning it, and then adding this like jiao mix. Um, so there was some acid and spice and sweetness with the brown butter. And that was sort of like the sauce, the glazing sauce for the scallops and the spring onions. And so that on just like white rice, I th- it was just like, yeah, definitely. I, I definitely in that dish I could see being on a on a Hema menu someday. On one of the finalized menus. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. many iterations of the Hema menu right now. I can't even keep track. That was in April, May. It's August now, and you know, honestly there seems to be no end in sight for now in terms of when uh, restaurants can come back for indoor dining, but is it still on the docket in terms of you looking for a space and opening this restaurant and, and tell me a little bit about what you've been up to maybe as well. So we're still looking at spaces. Uh, that's been really a, a lesson in patience and, uh, and sort of managing expectations and, and disappointment. I think, uh, 
you know, and you know, when you, in your conversation with Eric too, I feel like this came up with, with how restaurants right now are responding and trying to make decisions around their livelihoods and, and whether or not it's, it's kind of worth it to stay in business. Um, but I was in lease negotiations when COVID started and those kind of broke down over the last month or so. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of trying to get back into the market, but doing so, you know, no, I, I think it's possible that a lot of spaces will open up in the next couple of months and uh, just trying to, try, yeah, really trying to be patient right now because I don't feel like rushing is, is going to help. Um, and uh, just, yeah, making sure that I'm, you know, keeping track of, of the best options and um, not trying to rush into anything because that's kind of my tendency sometimes. And I think, you know, if there's one thing that COVID has taught me, it's really about slowing down a little bit. In, in, in the spirit of slowing down, right? And also just kind of uh, this, this pandemic that we're in. Uh, you mentioned something, I think it was an article with Michelin, um, something about cooking for self-care versus in a professional setting. Um, oh, yeah, I forgot about that. I wanted to dive a little deeper into that because I think that that deserves a little bit more of a, a conversation and dialogue around it. So so tell me what that's like, like kind of cooking in these times as opposed to maybe when in, in like a professional. I think that like a lot of chefs and cooks during COVID, this was kind of the first period in our lives that we were cooking at home and cooking for ourselves. And I think that's an entirely different skill and there's an entirely different set of value around that. Um, and it, it does go, I think it does go hand in hand with slur- slowing down and uh, having a different appreciation for, for food in a different context too. Um, I think certainly like when I'm at home, I, the food I make for myself is a lot simpler. It's uh, I realize like I eat a lot, I eat a lot of rice, which I, I don't think I normally do or, but for some reason that like was the, what that became like my comfort food. Um, so I, I would, I make a lot of fried rice. Um, I made a fried rice dish for the pop-up that actually, it was like a surf and turf fried rice with a, uh, with duck, duck and octopus. Um, also a potential hammer dish. Um, crowd favorite. But um, yeah, I was making a lot of congee, a lot of like fried rice, like very simple, like egg on rice. I mean, and really, I think also when we eat food in restaurants for like staff, you know, you like chow down because you have like four minutes to eat and then you have to go back to work or you have to like set up the dining room. And uh, this idea of like making a meal for yourself and then sitting down to enjoy it was just like, it's a completely new experience. It's so crazy how, how, how busy we were, you know, you kind of like, you kind of sit around and you're like, wow. Like, I mean, I, I'm, I'm feeling this a lot lately cause uh, not today, but when the weather is nice, you see the sunset and I can't tell you when the last time it was that I saw a sunset, you know, especially before this all happened because I'll I'm probably in service and, and then I go home pitch dark and you wake up probably a little late, you know, 10, 11, 12, let's be honest. So you don't even see the sunrise. And then you're going to work at two, three in the afternoon or if earlier, depending on your position in a restaurant and you're not, you know, and you sh- it's, most restaurants don't have the luxury of having windows, right? Or if they do, maybe it's like, uh, you know, a block, but with curtains, whatever the case might be. 
Um, but it's kind of crazy to me, you know, just like how you said that, uh, you know, family meal or staff meal is, is just you just chowing down like in four or five minutes and going back straight to work. Now it's like, you can kind of cook for yourself, you know, wow, the sun actually does set <laughs> at some point during the day. <laughs> like these crazy realizations that I'm sure people tuning in that are not industry, they're probably like, what are they like? What, like what, what kind of lives were they living? You know? Um, but I guess in that regard, do you think about that too? Uh, in, in, with your restaurant, like what, uh, fair practices would be for your restaurant or for your staff? Like, do you, do you envision a, a restaurant a little bit different from what, what restaurants are currently or used to be pre COVID, if you know what I mean, in terms of like labor wages and stuff? Yeah, I've, I've thought a lot about this. Um, yeah, both independently and through the work that I've been doing recently with one to one foods. But, um, the first thing I think about with HEMA is, has always been how is HEMA going to be about community? And I've been drawing a lot of inspiration from this this uh, term in sociology called the third place. Yeah, this like this idea of a restaurant or kind of like a social, a public social space as a pillar for for community building and and fostering creative interactions um, where there's like no barriers to entry. So like a place that everyone feels com- comfortable entering. I think everyone, or at least I hope everyone, like when they think of their dream restaurant, they envision it as some kind of gathering place for people, right? But I think I think it's entirely different and and you know more radical to factor that into your business plan. You know, for so instead of I think for example, just thinking about how you want your place to look aesthetically, like what is most aesthetically pleasing to you? How do you think about a restaurant space that best, you know, promotes conversation and comfort and accessibility to people. And, you know, rather than thinking about financial costs, like overhead and food and labor, how do, how do you think about sort of costs that are built into things like relationship building and community outreach? So I definitely feel like in the last few months, I've just been able to connect with more people who are also thinking through these things, you know, in relation to, how to build better hospitality businesses. Um, and I think a lot of those um, connections and relationships have been through one-to-one foods, which I've, uh, I've been working with them for a couple months now. Um, and uh, it's a COVID business. It came, uh, it was formerly Jianbing Company, a, a Shanghai street food, like fast casual concept. Um, and they received a PPP loan and they sort of pivoted their business into one-to-one foods, which is, um, it's kind of like a, a social enterprise. So it's a for-profit business, but with um, like a social mission component. Um, and really the, the basic concept of one-to-one foods is that we, we have two missions. We're trying to support independently owned Brooklyn restaurants. Um, I think that really highlight the diversity of the cuisine in, of cuisines in the borough and sort of like our cultural ambassadors, um, and so we're partnering with these restaurants to make uh, unique meal kits for sale uh, through our website. Um, we prep and deliver these meals. And then a portion of that revenue goes toward um, our sort of more social justice mission, which is around providing food relief to food insecure families in Brooklyn. Um, so this kind of model of sort of like driving our, our social mission through this like for-profit uh, branch. Um, I, that gets me really excited. I mean, when I think about 
alternatives to sort of like nonprofits and ways of supporting communities without just like throwing money or throwing food out into the, you know, into the world um, and not really having direct relationships with people. I, I feel very strongly like that this is a model that um, hopefully, I mean, we're still new. We're, we're only a couple of months old and I think we're still figuring out a lot of things um, on, on both ends. But um, I do feel like there's so much potential around this sort of, sort of model. I mean, I think the idea is great, right? This idea that there is a little bit of social, what is the word that I'm looking for? Kind of like the Tom's model or... Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's why some, some people compare it to that. Yeah, I totally forget the term that Blake uses that I really enjoyed in, in his book. I read like a couple years ago now, but it, it's, it's just a model that has been replicated in, in industries, not, not restaurants, right? So Tom's is the most prominent one, but I mean, I think Warby Parker kind of adopted it. Uh, Bombas, which is like a sock company, they do this. Yes, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So it's obviously a model that works and has been proven, but I haven't seen it in more of a restaurant context. So I think that's kind of the wrinkle though, right? Is because restaurants operate on such like tight margins when you throw in this element of like social justice. At the end of the day, what we're trying to do in one on one hand is like really help these restaurants generate revenue, like have, give them an additional revenue source, right? Because everyone knows that running a restaurant is difficult. It was, it was difficult before COVID, especially in New York. You you have all this increases in rent and labor and all these like fast casual, like well-capitalized operators. In COVID, when you're forced to operate like base, like operating on a small, like what, five to 10% of your former sales, and you're dealing with all these new regulations around seating capacity, these like added expenditures, added costs with outdoor dining and like safety protocols. I mean, it, it's, it just feels incredibly daunting. And uh, I think most of these places that we're working with, they, they don't operate on capital. They, you know, they operate on their sales. And uh, I think it feels untenable for a lot of people. And so I think, you know, we're just trying to, give people an option for added revenue somehow and, and hope, because honestly, like, I don't feel like the government is doing enough to help the hospitality industry. When you, when you look at the amount of money that the government is giving to like airlines versus hospitality against how many workers these industries employ, especially, you know, restaurants in local economies, it's just, it's, it's, it's infuriating. Um, So I think, I mean, it's kind of depressing to think about, but I think companies like One to One Foods and some of these other um, organizations that we've been working with are sort of committed to these local models of like relationship building and finding ways to sustain our community businesses um, that isn't dependent on the government, you know? I guess we just have to take it upon ourselves. And I think that it's, it is really frustrating because I mean, listen, if you work in airlines, great, that's, I'm happy for you. But like, there's just so many, there's just so many of us in this industry, in the restaurant industry, particularly that, you know, it, this is our livelihood, right? It's our passion. And uh, it just, it just feels like a, a stab in the back, slap in the face, whatever, you know, you want to say that there's just no lifeline. But um, 
you had mentioned just getting involved in some other projects and organizations. And, and just one thing I just want to highlight, and I would love for you to talk a little bit more about that I'm intrigued by, is this uh, Level Up project. The Level Up project is a new initiative um, that was conceived of by Allison Samuels. She's a woodworker based in Brooklyn. And um, it's really a response to the systemic barriers to entry and uh, generally the difficulties of act around access um, that people face in entering certain fields of craft and design. And the Level Up Project is a network of creators and business owners, um, people within larger companies that have decision-making power and um, sort of distributing our skills to people um, regardless of where they're coming from. It doesn't presume access to wealth or, you know, a space or any kind of resources. We're really focused on uh, sharing sort of like physical skill-based knowledge and our networks, sharing that out to the public. And hopefully, I think, re-envisioning what education looks like, what community looks like. Um, and uh, September is the first workshop series and there's, you know, there's classes on ceramics and composting and natural dyeing and uh, um, all these other sort of like concrete skill-based um, workshops that I, I hope people, um, I don't know, I hope people see the value of as a, as a way of sort of sharing knowledge as a form of power. Um, Cause really this is about empowering people um, regardless of background um, to be able to acquire these skills and then for them to sort of like, right. Because this is also a generative project. It's about people acquiring skills and then being able to dis- disseminate that skill and knowledge into their own community and sort of propagating that, that knowledge. Um, so it's a it's an ambitious project, I think, but I'm excited to be part of it. And uh, I'm, I'm, I mean, I really think it it just is very aligned with my own sort of personal um, mission and and vision and thinking around um, how you know alternative models in hospitality and restaurants and how they can become more. I mean, I I think you know when I think about radical change in the restaurant restaurant industry. I, I really have been challenging myself, I think, to, to consider how I can learn from and incorporate these like models and uh, like interpersonal dynamics of mutual aid. Um, because I feel like one of the biggest problems in restaurants, traditionally in restaurant cultures, is this idea of like the chef as a figurehead, this like centralized notion of power right and and leadership and to me i think there's (laughs) there's so much there that we can unpack right with like how food media has impacted that and this like idea of glorifying kitchen culture and and chefs as like personalities um but i do think like fundamentally it would be so different for us to envision restaurant kitchens and workplaces as rather than being run by some like single mastermind to have like a more sort of horizontal power structure, right? I think it's a pipe dream, honestly, but I think I also have an opportunity if I'm opening my own business to try that out and to be an example and uh, 
And I think it's, it's a huge risk uh, because I think it makes people uncomfortable. Um, but I also do feel like I have an ethical responsibility to commit to changing the way that we operate in our industry because I mean, honestly, I feel like we're fucked if we don't change things. Like if we don't hard reset right now, there's, I don't think this industry will survive as, as it currently is, um, nor, nor should it really. Right. Because it's based on things like unfair wage practices and like toxic work environments. I mean, these are not, these are not, professional environments that I would want to work in or want to sustain or support. Um, and so I think for me, it's if I'm opening a business right now or in the future, to me, it has to be different from like anything that I've seen before. Um, and so I think, yeah, I've been doing a lot of thinking around mutual aid and like community-based organizations. Like what would it look like for a restaurant to be a community-based organization rather than a, you know, quote unquote restaurant, how could it be more accessible to communities? You know, especially, I, you know, I've been looking at a lot of spaces in Bed-Stuy and, and Crown Heights, and those are gentrified neighborhoods. Um, how do I come into a space in those neighborhoods and claim to, to, to own a business that is accessible to everyone? I think about things like tiered pricing models, which the Level Up Project incorporates, and, and I'm like super excited to see how that works. I think there's so much potential there. But like, yeah, what would uh, have you ever been to a restaurant that has a tiered pricing model where you pay according to your means? Like, I've never been. I, I can't even, you know. Uh, I really don't know because I haven't seen it either. I've, I haven't even heard of it, especially in a restaurant setting. Exactly. I think, I think this model, these kinds of models we see in other industries, right? With like Tom's and, and um, fashion. So, but it, it's, it's hard to say what it looks like in hospitality because our, our margins are so tight. I mean, that is, that's a reality. And so I, I'm, 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 I'm saying these things and I'm also saying them with a lot of fear because I'm, I, th- I think that there's so much risk involved in this like transformative ideas of, of how restaurants should function, not just as like spaces where one person makes money, um, but like spaces that redistribute those resources to the community, you know? Um, These are the, yeah, I think these are the kinds of questions and the things that I'm asking myself these days. And, and uh, I mean, honestly, I feel like everyone, we need to all be asking ourselves uh, these questions and whatever we're doing, you know, whatever fields we're in. Yeah. So, so a few things that I think we can kind of further the conversation. Um, one would be with the tier pricing, like how do you, I know there's no final answer to this, but I'm just kind of picking your brain. How do you see it working? Right. So was there some sort of like proof of income that's part of this process or, or is it, or this is kind of like an honor system and you leave it up to the, the, the customer to kind of, uh, pay what you will situation. And then the second part of my question is with a model that isn't a top down model, especially that's inspired by like a traditional brigade system in the kitchen. How do you get people to collectively collectively buy into this new model? Right? So are you giving them stock options in the restaurant? Are you, um, you know, what, 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 so I just want to pick your brain. Like, what do you think about with the tiered pricing? I, I think, it has to function fundamentally on trust as an honor system. I think you can do 
I think you can offer recommendations for people as to people as far as suggested pricing based on whether it's income or like identity or, you know, um, age, like various, various factors. Um, but at the end of the day, this, this, you're right. I mean, this model will only work if everyone pays according to their means. Right. And that, and the other, I think another part of this conversation that's unique to hospitality is, do we really know what the cost of food is right now? Like when we go out to restaurants, do we know what the cost of food is as far as the restaurant being able to support its employees? Um, and cover its expenses. I don't. I don't know that people do, and I think that ties into uh, the conversation around tipping and uh, and service charges. You know, I, I think I think a lot of this is going to be about restaurants and chefs um, educating their customer base, um, and that the, to me that seems like a the one of the biggest challenges is uh is helping people confront like the real costs of of a restaurant business you know um that's separate from people like actually honestly paying in accordance with their means so i think you know this is still very new to me i i, I feel like there's a lot of backgrounds research that would need to go into like actually implementing this in any real way um, but I, I, I do feel like this is the first step is like actually reimagining what all of these systems that we have taken for granted, you know, could be in a more like equitable, just world, which is, that's the goal, right? <laughs> so in regards to the, to the approach of having a collective team or a collective voice and kind of going against not going against, but doing away with the top down approach would there would still be a final decision maker though, right? Or would it be kind of like a democratic voting situation? Like how do you, how do you imagine that playing out? I think what I think the most concrete way that I can sort of see this is I, I don't, I guess like this is definitely something that can change, but I don't, I don't really envision at least in this first iteration of, of HEMA as, as like a co-op is like something that's co-owned. Um, I do, feel like it's very possible for employees, full-time employees to receive a percentage of profits. Um, to me, that's, that's like, I think that's a win on all sides. It incentivizes people to stay, to grow at the, with the restaurant, uh, to be invested in its success, um, to feel like they're part of it and that they can benefit from that in like concrete ways. Um, to me, that's kind of like a version of like a healthy cycle of, uh, a workplace dynamic that is not, you know, a, a co-op, but also has some element of employees benefiting from the success of the restaurant and, and finding ways, I think, you know, part of it, percentage could be, go to employees and then percentage could somehow like be redistributed to the community. I think, you know, there I think we need to be more creative in the ways that we are thinking about profit and how to be assets to any communities, you know, that we, that we want to support. I think that's a really interesting approach because just, this is again, just from my personal experience, but especially if you're a manager um, and you get paid a certain salary and you, I mean, obviously you have the experience there too. 
And, um, you know, you look at the numbers because if you're in, ma- in the management level, you get to see the numbers and the, and the sales of the day. Uh, I've definitely worked at places I've, and I've definitely worked at places that were corporate, uh, big box, high volume. I mean, we were doing multi-million dollar businesses, like definitely like 10, 20 million a year. And then you're like, you're getting paid an X amount and, but you're still contributing what you believe is much more than this, this worth of salary. And it's that, I, I, I think it's something that we need to think about for sure, because I remember vividly when I was managing this particular restaurant, I was doing payroll and my dishwasher was making more nothing wrong with being a dishwasher. I was a dishwasher. That was my first job in this industry, but he was taking home more than I was as a manager in a week. Because he was getting hourly wage or Uh and I was getting a salary. And so because I was, I had a fixed salary, it didn't, it didn't matter how many hours, hours I was working. There's no overtime when you're a salaried manager. So, and people complain and a lot of owners and operators I know, we all complain about not having quality managers, but like, who, who do you expect to work their asses off, do payroll? And then you're like, you look, you look at the numbers and your dishwasher or your runner or busser is taking home more than you are for the amount of work you're doing, you know? So it's an interesting conversation. And I think that like that will definitely incentivize people to work a little bit harder as well. Right. Yeah. And I also think like what, what you brought up around seeing payroll and, and I think another element of sort of this like different business model is how transparent do we want to be, or should we think that we should be around sales and costs and, and seeing how money is actually expended and who it's going to. Um, I, I kind of feel like employees, people who you want to be invested in your company should have access to that information. They should be comfortable with how much they're making relative to anyone else. You know, uh, I, I, I'm not sure, but I, I feel like I can imagine a scenario in which that would definitely help foster sort of like a more team oriented, um, environment. You know, I, I think that's one thing that I've always appreciated about working in kitchens and restaurants. It it really does feel like, you know, you, you have this sense that you're all in it together, right. And you're either all gonna do really well in service. You're going to, shit's going to hit the fan and you're all going down together. I think there's this really <laughs> like team first mentality when, when you're working on it. And I do feel like that's, that's a valuable. And like a lot of people find that to be like one of the best parts of working in restaurants. Um, but I feel like there's ways to do that. Like the one, the way that I just described, it feels like kind of toxic. Right? <laughs> it's like you're, you live and die together. Um, but I, I do feel like there's ways to foster that that sort of like team spirit in a, in a, in a healthier way and in, in a more transparent way. But to counter what you just said, I think in the dining room, it's a little different because while the kitchen, again, this goes back to tipping, but kitchen, kitchen crew and cooks don't receive tips, right? Gratuity. Whereas the dining room does. And in, in the dining room, you have different tiers of employees, right? You have a server, but some, some restaurants even have a captain who's above the server. You have a, a back server, front waiter, whatever. You, there's so many terminologies. But my point being is there's different roles within the dining room and even in the kitchen. But because the tip pool belongs to the dining room staff, I have firsthandedly seen a lot of uh, turmoil and jealousy and 
um, you know, petty pettiness sometimes or hatred or, and, uh, over, over, over tips or over how much, how much people are getting paid. Right. So it's really, it's really, and I think that, that kind of builds up the more toxic environment, <laughs> to be honest, you know, like obviously money is, we don't want to, we don't want to talk about money, but the thing is like, it's, it's still, you know, you still have to get paid. You can start to pay rent. You start to, you know, have money. <laughs> yeah, so, no, for sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess, uh, so I, I haven't worked in front of house really, um, the, the entire time that I've been working in restaurants aside from when I was in Cambridge. But, um, I, I, I question, I question that model. I question the base model of why, why do we need captains and front waiters and back waiters? And, and you know, why can't everyone know how to do everything in front of house? Everyone gets the same split. If people come in and don't know how to do something, but they seem like they're willing, they want the skills and we can provide that for them. Why can't we train people so that they can do all these things? Um, so to me, I, I guess like, yeah, my problem is, is that we assume these like baseline ways of how restaurants should operate. And I just feel like now is the time for us to really reconsider that. Yeah, I, I can't agree with you more. And I think that's one of the things I've come to realize a lot with the, with, with the time that I have on my hands is I kind of think back at all the places I've worked and how like at EMP, I work my way up so I can get paid more. And I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> I have been drinking the Kool-Aid. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, I don't know. There's also, I appreciate, you know, I appreciate structure. I appreciate the idea of like putting in your hours, putting in your time, but I do feel like it, it needs to be balanced against, you know, when I think about, let's say, you know, you're the GE, like you help run a restaurant in front of house and a kid comes in who doesn't have any skills, but like great personality, like thinks you know, has, has, is like, has the right head for it. Why can't you prioritize, not you, but just why can't us as restaurant owners, as leaders prioritize this person's growth in our restaurant so that when they leave our restaurant, equip them with all the skills that we can so that when they leave our restaurant, if they ever do, they're better prepared to succeed elsewhere. I mean, I don't get, you know, to me, it's, it's one thing to work your way up it's another to feel like that is the, like you're stuck at a place because you have, you've like put in some time and now you feel like you have to just like stay it out, ride it out so that you can get to that like higher tier of pain of uh, income, you know? I mean, I think this also goes back to our conversation around sort of like building horizontal power structures and how can we equip people sort of not just with finances, but with skills. I mean, to, to me, it, that's what's empowering, you know, you can provide people with income day to day, but I want to invest in people's education. I want to invest in people's like skill building. I want them to be able to go into the world and succeed. Uh, not just at my restaurant, but anywhere they go. And I think that's, that's a way of sort of like spreading power, you know, but I, I don't know. I just, uh, <laughs> I'm sure tomorrow, tomorrow will be a different. <laughs> I know every day, every week is looking different. But I mean, I guess, I guess to wrap it up, right. I, I think I've, we've had a pretty good conversation on, on, on business practices and what restaurants could and should and feel, you know, could look like. 
what, what is like a last question. What is your general outlook on this industry? I think that the future of restaurants has to be tied into what's going on politically. I mean, I think we need to activate our spaces, our resources um, around Black Lives Matter, but also beyond. I mean, we need, I think we need to instill a different like set of values in our workplaces. Um, we need to, yeah, I think you, what you said mentioned, not seeing restaurants as, as purely transactional, um, but like really hyper engaged in community building. Um, to me, that's, that's the future of restaurants that I want to see at least. That sounds like a great place. Where can I live? <laughs> <laughs> I hope that, yeah. yeah, I hope that makes sense. But I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a little, I'm kind of like, I'm very, I go, I keep, I go back and forth. I'm like, I, you know, am I just going to bleed money? You know, thank you for, thank you for hearing me. I mean, I'm really, yeah, I'm really grateful for that. I think for so long, we've just been putting band-aids all the time. We never fixed a problem. We never have, <laughs> you know. Thank you for tuning in. If you did all the way through the end, I really appreciate it. And uh, a really special thank you to Hannah for taking the time and giving me her insights. It was great to catch up finally after all this time. Really, really excited to see what you do with Hema, but also the projects that you're involved in, whether it's One to One Foods or the Level Up Project. And um, just so people are aware, the Level Up Project started their ticket sales and it will be closing on September 11th. But if you want to learn more about that, it's thelevelupproject.org. Uh, and it's, it's a really great program uh, where they remove systemic accessibility barriers to and shifting power dynamics within the field of craft and design. So really, really awesome work. And um, to stay in touch with Hannah and Hema, you can follow on Instagram. So for Hannah, it is at Hannah C. Wong. And for her restaurant, her upcoming restaurant, it's Hema. That's spelled H-A-E-M-A dot B-K. If you wanted to follow along her journey, really, really great takes and insights on her Instagram pages as well. Again, thanks for tuning in. This has been Arnold and Hannah with Warm Welcome, and we'll see you next week.